This program was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Kidnappers, a community access media station. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this type of programming possible. You're listening to Radio Kidnappers, the voice of Hawke's Bay, and that's welcome to Pleased to Meet You. I'm Ken Morrison, and in this program, I introduce you, the listener, to the voices behind the microphones here at Radio Kidnappers. And today, it's my pleasure to be talking to Chris Purley, who is the host of Kowaikoi. Is that how you say it? Kowaikoi. What does that mean in, in, in English? Um, it means, what waters are you, literally? So it's like, it, 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 the expression is, who are you? But um, in the, the way you say it in Māori is, what waters are you? Um, and, and meaning that you've got like you've you're not just self you're actually part of a bigger mm. you so it's your upbringing your landscape your whānau your you know this is who you are you yeah. are, and the waters that you know your rivers and your mountains and well that. this is pretty much what we're going to talk about today but uh, I'll give you a 30 second plug for your program you almost just gave it to me right there <laughs> just tell us a little bit about what we can expect to hear on your program when uh, when you're on there well call Waikoi we we basically it's like what, what waters are you we we take somebody. And we sit there and go, well, okay, where have you come from? Yeah. Well, why are you the person you are? What, you know, because everybody, you know, we, we, we're not we're not clones in a vat. We, we we get born, and then some of us are born into this type of background or that type of background, and and the amalgam and the landscape or the town or the you know, in your case, the north yes, of England. Indeed. Is, yeah, that's you know, right. And this is who, and and you know, and and this is who you are. You and that's why everyone is fascinating. If you dig down. And you let them express the things that have actually um, in, that, that made a difference in their lives, like you know uh, yeah. whether it was people or events or landscapes or whatever, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, that's who people are. So it's like, who are you? Yeah, that's what we're going to find out about you. Um, pretty much, uh, I should have called this program that. Um, <laughs> now I know that you're a very, very, very good talker. So uh, yeah, I might have to pull you in, in a bit. But yeah, just wind the clock back. You take us back to your beginning. Tell us about where you grew up. I come from the east coast, so north of Gisborne, um, and my family go quite a way, well, from, not from a Māori perspective, but from a Pākehā perspective. We go back to Marafero incident where Te Kōti was on the rampage, and 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 that they all had 12 children, so I'm related to lots of people in uh, Gisborne, east coast, so you've got to make sure, if you were finding a girlfriend, you'd have to find out <laughs> what cousin they were, because <laughs> yes. for sure you're going to find a a fourth or whatever, you know. Yeah. So that's that's where I came from. I, and and then my father became a stock agent, and so we moved around, and we ended up in Hawke's Bay. So yeah. I grew up in I grew up in Hawke's Bay from the time um, I was about, I suppose, 11, 10, 11. What was family like, life like for you? Do you have fond memories of growing up? Um, I, I have very fond memories. I had a brother that was only 18 months younger than me, and so we were the two musketeers, <laughs> and so and we always lived in the country. So we just went bush. We would, if he wasn't dragging me, I was dragging him, and you know we dis- we discovered everything. And I, actually, this is, as a classic, we were sort of outdoors kids. As a classic memory for me was our mother saying you couldn't go near the Udahina stream, which was a, in the <laughs> Bay because some kid had died there, drowned there. So my brother and I just looked at each other, and I'm telling you, I was seven, and he would have been five, and we were off. Yeah. We were gone. <laughs> and when we finally got to the Udahina stream, which is like four miles away, we were just going over bush. We knew where to go. We were kids that we just still... You explored, yeah. And then we got there, and it was like, well... We're all the dead people. It's like, well, this is a bit of a... <laughs> and trudge back home again. So I had that memory. Um, so And my father was a... 
you know, we were always in the stockyards, we were always mustering, we were always in the land, and I had very good men. But then they split up, and I ended up, um, my, you know, my mother married again, and then my stepfather was a... It was actually quite interesting, because my stepfather was a builder, but he was also a reader. My father wasn't. Mm. So my father gave me this sort of, this love of land and people, and he's gregarious, and he'll... He's, God, he laughs and tells stories and have a few, has a few beers and just gets on the roll. But And then my, my stepfather was... Um, he was he was accepting of reading and thinking and things, so it's quite strange. Yeah, that yeah. sort of. When we reflect on those days, I mean, people like you and I—I'm a bit older than you, but you're pretty close to me. We often say, "Ah, the good old days." Was yeah. it really the good old days, or is that just how we like to think? Or we only remember the good stuff? Or we probably only remember the good stuff because it was plenty. I mean, we—I don't think we had much. I mean, when I think about the fact we didn't have a—you you couldn't go and. I mean, if it was a fine day, you were outside. You were gone because you didn't have a video or you didn't have those the electronic devices. And what I've reflected on this a lot, wouldn't it have been nice in a teenage years if you'd had cell phones? Because we wouldn't didn't have <laughs> to keep in touch with your, you know, friends and girlfriends and yeah. whatever. But we didn't. We had to go and yeah. use the. Well, you just didn't have the contact the way that the people could do now. I remember party lines. I, I, we were lived in party lines. I still remember long, long as M. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was school like for you? Did you enjoy school? Uh, I yeah I I ambivalent pretty much I mean I I think my teenage years were quite angsty I was Hastings boys high and um yeah I I, I think I I would have loved because I'd gone through this this family divorce and so you've actually got a lack of I think I was very confident as a youngster as a, and then when I was in high school I wasn't as I I, I locked I lost the confidence that mm. I used to have so there was a time of it was a time of sort of angst for me, I guess. You know, an angsty teenager with girlfriends and things like that and lots of things that I had to do. Yeah. Did you go into further education? Like, did you get your UE instead of university? Here I come, look out. <laughs> I wanted to have a gap year. I went right through. And, you know, I got... Str- and Hastings boys, they stream you. So they stream you into academic classes and whatever. And then it's expected of you. And, um, and, I, and, I, and I had a sort of a... And I wish I'd done it now. I wish I'd... Um, I wish I'd just gone out of my comfort zone and just yeah. um, gone on a fishing boat somewhere in in, mm. in Australia, up yeah. the up the up the you know the the Queensland coast or something. Done something like that for a year or two, just something, and just see what happens. But I didn't. You end up trudging through into university. It's almost like a it's school plus. It's just this. Oh, here we go, the grind. And I did. So I did do that. And then, but I took, I took a year off the next year because I. I had a rough first year, as mm. a lot of you see. A lot of first years, they get out of home and they and they go a bit mad. Yeah, get on tips, <laughs> <laughs> which happened to me. And um, and then I went back. I took a year off and worked in sharing gangs and various things. And I had that sort of get out of your comfort zone feeling. Worked in factories, worked in Watties here actually. Um, and then and then went back. So and then I ended up doing quite a bit. But you know. So what did you specialise in? Did you major in anything or? Was it just I somewhere was to go? ecology, actually, because um, I, I, everyone thought I'd go farming or do something to do with that for land. And um, Bull's Clearing really meant something to me up in the Carwickers, and there's a little patch of Podocup hardwood forest up there. And I remember going in there, and I would have been 10, 11, something like that, and I was just like, wow. And it was all the every sense that you could pick up. You can actually taste a forest. Mm. You can smell it. There's all these different smells of the. There's all this flickering light and moving wind in the in the leaves and boughs creaking and birds and and light. There's different shades of light and color and all this sort of stuff. And the smells and things. And I was and, and there was also a sense of being 
almost enveloped in life, like being held. It was a cathedral feeling. And I want to do ecology. So I, wanted, I went and did forest. I did forestry science. Mm. And here's the thing that really gets me, Ken, is that all those feelings, all those qualities, those connections, those you, you are part of this, all that sort of stuff, is t- ripped out of you and you measure shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and all the magic goes into the, in, into the measurement and the machine. And it's not a machine. It's a system. And, I, and, it, and it, so you accept that. You go through this mechanical science and but there's in the back of your mind is that experience. Well, mm. Hang on, yeah. hang on. The birds are singing and the the grubs are eating away and and you know black robins will come and sit on your on your boot. And I've had this. I've been on survey in native forest and a black robin, a, a, a robin, bush robin, little. They'll come and sit. And a bush robin will come and sit on your boot, cock its head, and go into the little eye where your lace is mm. and pick out a little wee tiny worm that it's found. And you're just sitting there going. Because we used to feed them yeah. at for lunch, we'd find a hoo hoo grub somewhere. We'd feed them to these robins, and they'd come they'd come around us, and and it's that sort of magic, which mm. is what that's the magic of forests and things like that. But science, yeah, that's what gets me. Science misses some of that. You can't buy that, can you? You can't, and no. it's experiential. Yeah. It's a bit like you know Aristotle said you can't go to a you can't go to class and learn how to ride a horse. You have to be in it. You have to be on it, exactly. well, not in it, on it. You have to learn, you know, that way. Okay, school's over, um, the world is your oyster, and I pretty much know where you're going to go from here, but what did you decide you were going to do? I mean, so you've got your degree and... and um, well, then they, yeah, they put me through post-grad. Um, yeah. I was employed by the Forest Service, which was... They wanted people with... Forest Service was quite an interesting experience because uh, even though they had all these foresters uh, that had come through that technical background, they really emphasised the experience. So you were thrown in the bush for three years. Mm. They wanted to know... Um, what have you done? And you said, well, I've just done two degrees. And I said, no, we don't give a shit about your two degrees. What have you done? <laughs> and so I'd done 48 weeks work where in your field experience. And it was, and for me, it had been things like native bush. So I'd gone into animal and veg surveys up the Southern Alps into the bush for six weeks at a time and smelling like a bloody polecat and washing yourself in this frigid, you know, polter river yeah. or something like that. And then I'd spent time on the West Coast in the Saltwater Ecological Area doing all these amazing things that I loved. And they, and I said, oh, well, I spent, you know, I've spent a good, um, well, I think it added up to half a year doing animal and veg surveys. And they said, we're not doing any of that. <laughs> so if you've done logging, if you've been in, if you've done established, all these sort of things, that, you know, the plantation stuff, they throw you in the deep end. And that's a young forester. So you're actually expected to experience. Yeah. And then you come out with this confidence. It's really amazing. So you go in there as a, as a bright, shiny boy that doesn't really know anything mm. about And then after three years of being thrown in the bush and told to think and told yeah. to write and report and whatever, what, you, what do you think, crit, critique. And then you come out and we, you end up supervising gangs. And if someone comes up to you and says, oh, you know, this is not fair, boss, or whatever, you say, oh, let's have a look. And you go and you could judge. And you, mm. they built judgment without even... Without, without even knowing what yeah. they'd done, they'd actually built judgment. And you'd go in and say, oh, you've got a point, or nah, yeah. that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that's what happened. And then I ended up, like, you know, further on from there, you know, the Ministry of Forestry and um, consulting with farmers and, um, you know, things like that. Interesting that you say that because uh, it sounds to me like that bit of paper wasn't really worth much it, and that there was it, life's experiences were what yes, you needed. It, it gave you the door. Mm. But there's plenty of people that had that ticket to get through the door, and they weren't able to um, connect. If you see, if you see what I mean, they were people. I, I saw a lot of people that um, were often city people that had never they didn't actually appreciate land, 
And then they were basically, they, but what the forest was good at was the drafting gate. It had realised that you're just a numbers man. So yeah. they put you into, in front of the computer, looking at, at computer simulation runs. Or you are, um, you're, you know, you're, you're basically a, there are, everybody has different strengths and they would shift you into the different strengths. But the degree, all the degree did was open the door and provide you with some base that you could um, that that you could rely upon. You went back to it at times, but yeah, no, there's no question that your degrees. Um, and, well, and then I did philosophy afterwards on my but your degrees um, are, are not the whole of you at all. No. Yeah. If you could wind the clock back and do it all over again, would you do the same? Or would you? Or did <laughs> it's you, a really mm, interesting question because yeah. I'm actually a natural humanities person, you know. Like, but my family were like doggedly opposed to. Or, you know, doing a BA, what philosophy and classics and, and and English literature and history. What do you want to do that? Yeah, for? What, what a good thing a school do. teacher. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's actually about learning to think. And and I actually did that later. And I always read anyway. I was I was a voracious um, consumer of history and and philosophy and and all that. I, I I just consumed it. So I had humanities, but and I don't think you're anybody if you haven't. Love of music, for God's sake, Ken. Who doesn't love music? Poetry or yeah. whatever. You know, just the sound of language on you know on your on your lips. Just listening to somebody that's a good poet speaking. You know, that's very deep of you to say that. Well, it's true. <laughs> it's, a, it's this sort of it's that once again it's that sense of what that forest was. You know, that early experiences. It's like there's poetry here, and there's beauty, and there's music, and there's and there's life, and it's you can't reduce it to numbers on a spreadsheet, and if you do, you lose it. Yeah. Now you're pretty much a Hawke's Bay boy, born and yeah. bred almost. What, well, bred, certainly yeah. bred. Yeah. What, what is it that keeps you in Hawke's Bay? What's so good about Hawke's Bay? Well, I left here when I was 18, as you do, go to university, and um, and I ended up 27 years in the South Island, and I always hankered for home. And for me, home was Hawke's Bay, uh, Hawke's Bay Gisborne. Mm. So this strip, the Tyrafity, ty- if you like, um, right through the um, where the EIT is and all that sort of stuff, they, they come from Hawke's Bay right through to, to, to the East Coast. Um, and... It it is. I love the weather. I also love the hill country. I love the fact that there are hills and there are sea. There's the sea, and there's this wonderful short a short winter with wonderful autumns and springs. The summer I used to love as a kid, but I don't love them love the summer anywhere near as much as I used to because we were always running off to Ocean Beach mm. or down to the Tuki Tuk, um, and so that experience of being able to you know live in the landscape yes. in the summer was lovely. Um, but you know, and also, I mean, I've loved, I've always loved it because it's this food here, and it's sort of like it's got this feel of um, good food, good wine. I'm not a really a, a wine no. snob or anything like that, but but I, I like the fact that there's stuff like that around. Yeah. If you could uh, once again go back in time and visit yourself as an 18 year old, what, what bit of advice might you give yourself? I think believe in yourself. I actually didn't believe in myself mm. at 18. I did not believe in myself, and I was listening to my parents far too much. I was listening to. Um, you know, you get this this pressure. It's almost where they want to live vicariously through you, so they want you to become a lawyer or yeah. an accountant or a doctor. And it's like, who the hell wants to be any of those? <laughs> you know, all I wanted to do was to be, to live in the land. Yeah. I just, you know, that. To me. So I think believing in yourself is. If I I, I end up with my longtime partner, um, I'm, I'm we met when she was nineteen, I was twenty one. We were both students. She was a nursing student, I was a student. And um, I think we actually built each other's confidence in that mm. early 20s. So I actually became more confident and more accepting and more understanding myself a bit more. And having the having the sort of the – I think I, I grew the the cajones uh, to actually sit yeah. and say, I'm going to do what I want. And I don't. I, I started not caring about – I just thought, oh, no, I'll think for myself. I'll yeah. just be myself. But that was a maturing that happened. If I'd had that at 18, 
I think my life might have been a, a lot. If I'd believed in myself at 18, I might have had a different life. So it's hard. I like that that 18-year-old Chris Purley wouldn't have listened. I wouldn't have listened. I might have said, "No, bugger it. I'm going to do. I'm going to take the gap year yeah. or two or three. I'm going to sit there and end up in Southeast Asia or do something really edgy." Because I've always, I actually said to my children, I, you know, I, when they came along, um, and at the very when they were getting into their um, their years where they wanted to go, I said, and I, I remember sitting down with my daughter and saying, "Do what you love and do it well." Mm. Do what you love. Like, you cannot sit there and make a Picasso into an accounts clerk because that's a crime against humanity. Mm. So yeah. if you are a musician or if you've got if you've got a natural writing style, and you, if you love this, you do it. Do it, but do it well. And my daughter, being my daughter, said, okay, what if I want to be an axe murderer? And I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> She's rolling her eyes with this stuff. And I said, oh, do what you love, do it well, and make the world a better place. Yeah. And she looks at me, she goes, what if I just kill the bad people? <laughs> that is so a great. <laughs> that's a great bit of advice that you gave your daughter. I know, I know she didn't become an axe murderer. No, she, but she, what, what was the best bit of advice that someone gave you? Um, I think probably the best bit of advice was if you're going to be with somebody, um, live with them first. And the question you ask when you're about to get married is um, not are you in love or lust because mm-hmm. you always are. It's can you live with the person, this person for the rest of your life. Yeah, I think that that that's probably the best advice I got about relationships was, and that was in the time like that was in the late seventies and mid late seventies where, and, and somebody said that live you got to live with a girl or you know partner yeah. and and I, but in those days of course there were segregated bloody floors yes. and hostels and segregated flats and stuff and living you know that that, that wasn't on, but it's so true. It, uh, yeah, it, it, you actually learn about the person. You know, do they squeeze the toothpaste in the right place? What are they like in the morning? What are they like when they haven't got their makeup on and it's been a bad night the night before? And you know, are they well? All these things that we know about when you're married because you actually live with someone. But <laughs> you don't. I mean, I, I think it's really funny that people sit there and maintain this particular facade and then have this ceremony and then and then you live with each other. It's like that's mad. <laughs> so that was the best piece of advice, yeah. Ken. I wonder I if you, no one knows you better than you. If you could change one thing about yourself, what would it be? Well, there's the physical thing because you know I'm in a wheelchair. Yeah, that's right. So that's um, and that happened because I got a neurological condition and things. Um, that's a really interesting question because the first the first instance is to go well. You know, I just loved walking the land. It's really it's really interesting to me that the thing I loved the most, which was being able to get out and walk and feel landscapes and go into a stream and things like that, was the thing that was taken away. But that opened all these other doors because I ended up doing policy and research. Mm. And stuff. So if I hadn't, if that hadn't happened. I might have been a miserable manager of a plantation forest on the east coast, acting like a like a, in a corporate hellhole, yeah. and I would I could be miserable. I don't I don't know. But if I was to change, I no I, I'll go back to what I said about about um, self belief. I think that I think that having self belief and having particularly those teenage years, having this sort of sense of. Um, I don't know. You never know everything because you're 18 and you know nothing. But, but um, just having a, I don't know, a much more open idea about possibilities in the world. Yeah. I think if if I'd had that, then um, my life would have been better. Now, anyone who knows you would know that you're a clever bloke. And I wonder, um, what's a skill that you currently don't have that you'd love to learn? And why would you love to learn it? Um, that's interesting as well because it comes back to that art side of things, if you like. Um, I've I like other cultures, so if I had the opportunity, I, I, I think that you embed yourself in cultures by actually living there and being of that community. And some of the languages I'd love to, I, um, 
I'd love to learn. I actually, my daughter did classics, and it was she did it because she loved it. But I would have, I would have loved to have studied because there's so much deep philosophy and history and culture that comes from that about perspectives on life. And I'd like to learn a lot more about that. I mm. think those are the sort of things that I'd learn. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm not sure whether you're a material person or not. But if you I'm could not. only keep one or two things in your life, what would they Books. be? Books. Yeah. <laughs> Books and music. Yeah, books can't. and music. That's the. I, I think that. Um, yeah, that's the most important thing. Um, if you've got, if you've got those, and you're able to, and a quiet space, you've got to have a space that's sort of a very cool place where you can just completely relax. Um, that's those are the things that are really important to me. And friends, I think I've got a lot of friends, and um, it's a communal life a lot of lot of ways. And um, I like my solitude, but I also want to keep my friends. Yeah. yeah. Now, I know that you're a bit of a political animal and you're very interested in politics and a, an open-minded person who's happy to listen to both sides of an argument. But I wonder if you became the Prime Minister tomorrow, what's the first thing that you would change? Treasury. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you, don't want to get, you don't want to get me started on no, some wait, of this. Wait, we've only got a couple of minutes to go. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I was there in the early 80s um, uh, when things... 1984... Roger Douglas and then Ruth Richardson in 1990, and um, and I was in policy. I was a young senior policy analyst, and I saw um, economists from Treasury saying that uh, basically your knowledge, your knowing of place, and your knowing of a sector, not an industry, but a sector of people, landscape, forest, farms, was irrelevant, and you're captured. Whereas we're objective and we um, we know, and so you end up. I saw, I saw the centralisation. Of government, of government, and uh, and the loss of regional touch, the loss of policy analysts that actually knew what the hell they were doing. And a classic example, I know, the three waters thing is mm-hmm. about resourcing and constraints because politicians like to not spend money and they get voted back in again. But the very fact you're taking everything away, including the doing, worries the shit out of me because mm. it's the do it's the people that own those networks in a city or a region and they're linked through to roads and they're linked through to parks and rec they're linked through to people looking at pond systems to hold water the minute you take that knowledge away and centralize it mm. it worries me and that's part of that whole treasury model that these are a group of economists with an MB. so i would fundamentally shift the way that we look at um policy making yeah because i come from that background Two people over for dinner, living or dead, who are they? Oh, shit. Oh, everyone's probably saying Gandhi and Mandela. <laughs> yes, a lot of people <laughs> say that. Um, interesting people. Um, there's actually a... Uh, I, don't, I, don't, there's, there's a I don't know if you know the play Top Girls, um, but they have Dull Gret, who went down to hell at the table, and they've got um, that Chinese concubine that became emperor. <laughs> so these Most sort of amazing. And they, you have these amazing... Oh, yeah, who would I... Oh, yeah, that'd be interesting because I, I, Henry David Thoreau, I think he's pretty cool, uh, and I think Churchill because I'd like to argue with him. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Churchill will be in for a big argument. Oh, yeah. and last question, and it's a bit of a morbid one to end up on, but when you finally leave this world, Chris, how do you think you'll be remembered? Uh, how do I think, or how do I want? Well, I, yeah, how do you want to be remembered? Um, I think somebody that's tried to contribute, try to make the world a better place. I think. I think that's the. I think that's what drives me is that there's a legacy for your grandchildren that, and your great grandchildren. You know, the, the we, we are future ancestors, if you like, and I think that I ne- I want to be a good future ancestor mm. that that didn't take from the world that actually gave back in some ways because I think extraction 
we're not creating so much as extracting because there's money in, in taking. And I think that that worries me about our future. Yeah. And if you could write your own short epitaph for your tombstone, what would it be? <laughs> <laughs> I told you I was sick. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Chris Purley, it's been my pleasure to talk with you on Thanks, this. Pleased to meet you. And you look after yourself and talk to you again in the near future. Brilliant. Thank you. This program was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Kidnappers, a community access media station. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this type of programming possible.